great being here this morning. Uh, before uh, we turn to the Word, may I say a few introductory, introductory remarks about the week that we have had here in Dallas. And not only here in Dallas, but around the world. I want to read to you two things that I have read this week. First one goes like this. We certainly live in challenging times, both in our own country and around the world. The recent events of Dallas and really Istanbul, but just two days ago, stand as stark reminders of uncertainty and fear. In light of those events, I think of the words of Jesus. These things I have spoken to you, he said, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And then I love the words of our own chief of police here in Dallas, Chief David Brown. When he said, serve your community, don't be a part of the problem, he said, we're hiring. Get off the protest line and put your application in. I love that. And I know you, like me, have valued him and appreciated his leadership as a Christian in our own city. And then I want to read another letter. You'll be interested in this. Today, in the aftermath of our city's tragedy, there is chaos and confusion. Now, you think that sounds like Dallas. This comes from a pastor who's a friend of mine in Nice. Surely you will hear sound doctrinal bites coming forth from your believing friends and family, things such as, God is sovereign, or he works out all things for the good of those who love him. And you meant evil for good. All our favorite truths in the scripture and reiterated many times. But I would like to add a brotherly word of caution. These are intimate truths. They are higher tenets of our doctrine. As much as they are true, there is much to be resisted in using them. Our city, our people are under great duress. They have been injured deeply and in their souls. If they did not have the above truths in place before this evil fell upon us, then this is most likely not the time for them now. We want them to get there. We desire all people to be able to go through whatever circumstances and believe, deeply assured in the fullness of God's love and justice and mercy. He is in control and that he is intimate with the events happening among our people. Think of it this way. You cannot successfully teach calculus to one who cannot add. You cannot create a great souffle if one does not know how to beat an egg. Not only an inability, but the pain makes one incapacitated too. They need traction, assistance to walk forward, eyes to guide them through a blind moment. They need compassion. I'm not saying withhold preaching the gospel. I am saying preach it in acceptable, palatable means. Be bi listen, be big on listening, high on caring, outlandish in serving, and just having the ministry of presence. We need to be the arms and hands of Jesus right now, not just the mouth. And that leads me into our sermon for today. What's your vision of God? I love the songs you chose because they all talk about a vision of who God is and what he means to us. This sermon is really part two, if you're here today and we weren't here a couple weeks ago, when we preached on what is your vision of God from Ezekiel chapter 1, 2, and 3. I live almost every day thinking of those four living beings. 
You get those pictures in your mind of those creatures, those living creatures with their four sets of eyes and heads and faces swirling around, a picture of God in His majesty, sweeping in in His sovereign judgment of Israel. And then, you know, as the vision progresses, uh, Ezekiel sees above these four living creatures an expanse like heaven, the throne of God. And above this expanse, he sees one who has the appearance of a man. This morning's message is titled again, What is your vision of God? But not the vision of Ezekiel. I want to say, what is your vision of Jesus? And for the answer, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 is one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. It gives four stories. When I think of these four stories, I think of Fanny Crosby's great hymn, Tell Me the Story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. Tell me the stories most precious, sweetest that ever were heard. We cannot traffic in the life of Jesus too much. But I simply want to tell these four stories. And as we think about these four stories, I want to remind us of the truth of that vision in Ezekiel. In Colossians 1, Paul says, listen, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all His fullness to dwell in Him. That is all the fullness of the vision of God we saw in Ezekiel 1 is in Jesus. Down in verse 3 in chapter 2, In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's Jesus. Verse 9, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This vision of God that Ezekiel saw, the appearance of a man, it's all in the man Jesus. But Jesus comes to us in a way in this morning's text and in His incarnation that Ezekiel could not have imagined. Both are true. We live a deep vision of, of who God is, but we want to see Jesus today. And that's the vision I want to talk about this morning. So listen with me to these four stories or turn in your copy or your electronic form of uh, the Bible. Chapter 7, the first story is in verses 1 through 10. Each one of these stories could stand as a sermon on their own, and I'll simply summarize it and make the high points. Jesus was in Capernaum. There is a centurion who has a sick slave. Verse 3, after him come and save the life of his slave. And so some of this centurion's Jewish friends go to Jesus and say, Jesus, will you come and save this centurion's son? He's sick and about to die. So Jesus starts to come. And then the centurion starts thinking about this. He says, me, a centurion, who am I to ask this Jewish prophet who I believe can heal my son to come into my house. He said, I'm unworthy. And here, verse, verse 6, here's what he says. Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy to come for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority. Those are critical words. Under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. 
When Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd and said that was following him, I say to you that not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And those who came to tell Jesus not to come returned. And you guessed it, his, his slave was healed. Now I've entitled this sermon in your outline, or this section, this story, Jesus' humility crossed racial lines to meet needs. One of the interesting things about Jesus, you find him going all kinds of different places. He goes through Samaria. He ministers to Gentiles. He ministers to all people. He does not just stay to his own. In fact, even in his birth, Luke picks up the prophecy of Isaiah saying that he would be a light to the Gentiles. I want you to see the big truth here. Jesus' love is interrationally involved. It goes to other people other than himself. That topic has been in our city this week. It captures our country. Let me tell you, the answer, to the, the answer of the church to a world is our relationships with all kinds of people wherever we go so that every race is touched by the power of Jesus. This Gentile centurion's life was changed by Jesus. But notice two things. Interracial involvement commands humility. First, for the centurion. He, he humbled himself to go to this Jewish prophet. He thought he was God, and as he found out, he was. But here's the way it comes. The centurion humbles himself to say, I need help. Let me tell you, we all need help at times. Do we humble ourselves to go to God and we'll t we take Him at His word, whatever He says, or do we demand that He comes into our very presence and fixes our lives? The centurion humbles himself under God. He says, I too am a man under authority. The centurion understood his own position was a position of humility. Let me tell you, all of life is a position of humility. We're all under somebody. We don't like to admit it at times. We like to be our own God. But truly, we are all under somebody in life. Do we think of what we're in charge of or who we are under in our lives? Now watch this. Not only did the centurion have humility, he understood Jesus' humility. I have a sermon. I love to preach the humility of God. Jesus was under God, and this centurion knew that and understood that. Here's how I know that. The centurion's thinking like this. If Jesus is under God, then he doesn't need any, he doesn't need to be here. He can be anywhere in the universe and say the word. And if he's under God, it'll happen. There's no magic in his presence. He doesn't have to be here physically. Oh, I asked you this morning, does he have to be here physically this morning? No. He is under God and his presence is here with us as we have sung. And the centurion says this, I'm a man under authority. I understand that Jesus is under authority. You know, Jesus always did the will of his Father. He said, I do nothing on my own initiative, but everything I do, everything I say comes from him. You know, I think Jesus brings all kinds of people into our lives every day. Just through our work, through our living, through our schools, wherever we go. So we're always under his authority, directed everywhere. How many interracial connections would we have if we just listen to the voice of God in our lives every day, wherever we go? What about your neighbors? We have interracial neighbors that live in our street. How many of them have been in our homes? 
How many of their homes have we been into to share the gospel, to love and to appreciate and value? How often does that happen in our work? You see, Jesus' humility crossed racial lines. The second story I want to say is in verses 11 through 17. Jesus goes to a city of Nain. And I simply want to say in this city, it's not a well-known city. You know, when you go to Jerusalem or when you go to visit Israel, most people never visit Nain. It's a city south of, it's a little town south of Nazareth. You know, like today, you know, Nain is not an important city. But to Jesus, he stops at non-important cities. They're the way of his life. And he goes there and look what he runs into. He runs into a funeral procession. A dead, verse 12. So he approached the gate. The dead man was being carried out. The only son of his mother and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. And when he saw her, he felt compassion for her. You know, I think Jesus, if he were in Dallas, if he were in Nice, he would feel compassion for these broken families and cities. He would. I guarantee you. Can you envision? I watched the funeral processions this week in our own city. Can you envision Jesus stopping them and saying, I'm going to change your lives today. And his resurrection power raised that young son up. Can you imagine everything that was changed? The joy that came to that family when Jesus stopped and his resurrection power changed everything. You know, I don't, we don't need Jesus to resurrect the dead to know that he's God, do we? You remember what he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Amen. That's our testimony. Have the power of Jesus to raise the dead. He doesn't raise the dead except for a very few exceptions. But through those exceptions, they point to his God-like power over all of life, over all of death. And believing him, the resurrection and the life, we live even though we die in this city. God is in charge, a vision of him. Death is not the end of life. Story number three is in verse 18 down through 35. Let me summarize it. It's a story of an interchange with the Pharisees and, and John's disciples. They trigger it. Verse 18, the disciples of John reported to him about all the things, and some of him, two of his disciples, this is John the Baptist who is in prison. <coughs> John sent them to Jesus saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? Now let me just stop and ask you, if you were John the Baptist in prison for preaching the message, by the way, one of the ironies, or one of the things that I think about, why didn't Jesus ever go save his cousin, John the Baptist? He went to his friend Lazarus, raised him from the dead. But Jesus never went to the prison cell like he did with Peter when he was imprisoned in Acts. John suffered in prison for preaching the gospel, preaching it clearly to those in authority. And they didn't like his message, and they said, you're banished in prison. Would you wonder if God's still in charge if you were John the Baptist, suffering in prison? God, why don't you clarify things? Why don't you release me? Why can't I go see my cousin and 
love his ministry the same way. Jesus said, go back and tell him this. Uh, <clears throat> verse 21, at that time he cured many people of diseases, afflictions, evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. Watch this. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who takes no offense at me or accepts my message. You know, Jesus' message is right out of Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, where he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the gospel to the poor, proclaim least to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to preach the favorable year of the Lord. It's a message of the Messiah. You go tell John that I am the fulfillment of what Isaiah preached about, and he will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am the one who he prophesied of. Jesus' healing power provided peace for the diseased, the broken, and the demonic. See, he's not the man on the cloud up there. He's the man among the people pouring out his life, caring for them, building relationships with them, touching them, mingling with them, going to cities which were not on the map, so to speak, people who would not be observed ordinarily. And then there's a whole discussion about, in verse 24 through 35, the Pharisees kind of get on him, and Jesus basically gives them a message and say, well, what do you want to do? You want to criticize John? You want to criticize me? You want to sit and talk about everything? I think about that today. We live in an interesting time, and I hear people banter back and forth about politics all the time. What's happening in our country? How is God working? You know, I don't know the answer, but I do know we need to be Jesus to our culture and speak the truth and love people. Get involved with people who are interracially not like us. Get involved with people who suffer and are dying. And through the power of God, touch their lives and pray for them. We need to take the word of healing the afflictions of evil spirits and diseases. We need to be praying with people who are broken in life. That's our mission in the midst of everything. The Pharisees get sidetracked and all these discussions that are meaningless for them. They don't do a thing. They sit on their rear ends and talk about life. You know, God wants us to be involved with people. Jesus says in verse 35, yet wisdom is vindicated by her children. You know, what will yours and my life produce? What will be the impact of our life? What will be the impact of our prayers and this year of politics and presidential elections? What will be the impact of our lives in relationships amongst our family as we talk about these issues, as we get involved in our world, our broken world? I must tell one more story. There's a fourth story in this passage that is just utterly stunning. Now, one of the Pharisees that Jesus was rebuking was requesting him, I inserted that, was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Interestingly, Jesus fellowships with people he criticizes. You know, that's a tough balance, but I want to say it's a very spiritual and holy balance. 
Can you speak the truth with, to people with whom you disagree and still sit at the same table with them and have fellowship with them? Jesus criticizes the Pharisees in this exchange regarding John the Baptist, but yet he goes and sits down with his Pharisees. That's a great test of our spirituality. Do we insulate ourselves with people just like us or do we get involved with people who are totally different than we are? Even people with whom we disagree. Even with people who are different colors and different racial, racially than us. Now watch this. Is, I love this. And there was a woman in the city, verse 37, who was a sinner. Now what kind of lifestyle do you have to live to be known as a sinner? She was an immoral woman. Uh, we could find a woman like her maybe over in Harry Hines somewhere. Or during Super Bowls when prostitution is at its highest in our major cities. You know, across the world, immoral women are people who give their bodies <clears throat> immoral ways. This woman was known to be an immoral woman. She was one of those Harry Hines women sitting right in the town, right in the seat here beside Jesus. Now picture this. You've got a critical Pharisee. You have Jesus, and right at Jesus' feet, you have a prostitute. Perhaps dressed as a prostitute. Perhaps, I mean, everybody knew her as a prostitute. What a picture. <laughs> you talk about Jesus engaging sinners, people in need. And not only was she sitting there, look at what she did. When she learned that Jesus was there at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him, not wanting to get in his way. I mean, picture this. I've often wanted to dramatize this in a church. This would be amazing. Jesus is seated here. She's behind him. She wasn't, doesn't want to get in the way. Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and keep wiping them with the hair of her head kissing his feet and anointing them with this perfume out of this alabaster box. Been in a church service in North Dallas. I, you know, I'm sure everybody was uneasy at that moment. Jesus teaching, this woman goes on, anointing his feet, wiping them with her hair, bowing at his feet. I mean, just visualize it. The Pharisee says, Jesus, don't you know that she's a sinner? And I think Jesus would have come back to him right away and said, you know, I've come for sinners. What is your problem? Which reminds me of the question, how much do we hang out with sinners in our lives? How much are we comfortable with them? How many times do we sit at their table? How many times do we take them to lunch? How many times do we know about their families, their marriages, their hurts, and their life? How many funerals do we go to? Because their people die, sinners' people die just like we die. Jesus is involved with them, interrationally. He's raising the dead with his power. He's touching people who are diseased, com, com, uh, driven by demons. And now he loves sinners. Jesus answered Simon, who questioned him, I have something to say to you. So he replied, say it, teacher. A money lender had two debtors, which one owed him 500 and the other 50. So they were unable to repay, and he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? <laughs> the answer is right. I suppose the one who forgave more. How much do you and I need to be forgiven? 
is the question Jesus asked us today. We'll remember the table in just a minute. We'll remember his body, which was broken, his blood, which was spilled for us. Our need is immense that it took the Son of God to die in our place for our sin. And here he's trying to give that message to these Pharisees and everybody, and they're all missing the point because they're distracted by their own prejudice. But not Jesus. His love freed a woman broken by her sins. Just in summary, these four stories are amazing to me. For the people, <laughs> the centurion had joy, his slave was healed. The woman whose son was dead is now living. Those diseased and broken by evil spirits are now healed. And the woman is ecstatic because Jesus loves her and forgives her. He says to her in the end of the story, go, your faith has made you whole. I'm going to say it's true for us as well. You know, we were sick like the slave. We were dead in our trespasses and sin like the son. We were diseased and broken by sin. Peter says he carried all of our diseases. By his wounds ye are healed. And he has cleansed us from our sin. We were like that immoral woman. Apart from God, enemies of Him. And then I think, how many people are out here in our world like this? How many families have people who are ill in their lives? Their sons are, and daughters are sick. They have died. How much do we reach out to them? Are we touching diseased people? Are we friends with people of evil spirits? And do we associate with sinners? That's a vision of Jesus. You know, that's what he would do if he came all over again for the very first time. He would be a man for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Yes, Ezekiel had a vision of God. This appearance of a man high and lifted up. But that man is the one who came as a babe and died on the cross for our sins. And it's that message that we have the privilege of heralding to our city and our world today. May God help us not to get sidetracked, but to stay focused on a vision of Jesus. Would you pray with me? <coughs> Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your life. I thank you for the stories not only of Luke 7, but for the, all the stories of Jesus. And I pray that every day we would be gripped by his great love. We would see each one of ourselves as totally needy of him, understanding that without him we could do nothing, but that with him we can represent him and live his life through us, through the power of the Spirit, to the broken world of North Dallas and this world we live in today. Encourage us, I pray, through your spirit. Even now, prepare our hearts to take in his life as we remember him through the bread and the cup. Fill us with his spirit today so that others may see Christ in our lives, we pray. In the name of Christ and all of God's people said,